If you like the title messages, the title of this message is Diligence Despite Perception. Three big words. Diligence Despite Perception. We started a study last week called The Quiet Life, and it's based out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That says in verse 11, aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, your own hands, as we commanded you. And in that verse, it's basically saying, hey, listen, our day and age, our society teaches us that the only way that you can have significance in this life is if everybody notices you. The only way that you can be used, the only way that you can rise up on the scale of people that are productive and important is if people notice you. So you got to position yourself in the right place. You got to be seen. You got to get a lot of views on YouTube. You have to get a lot of likes on Instagram. People have to see you, and if they don't see you, then it's not important. But what we learned last week is that God actually tells us in his word that we should aim to live a quiet life that is only seen by God, knowing that it's God that rewards us for our diligence. And if we're honest, we also learned we don't want the spotlight. The spotlight crushes you. I mean, there's, there's many people like YouTube stars, social media stars, that can't live under the pressure of putting on this facade in front of everybody. It's all fake. You're only putting the best of up on Instagram. You're only putting the best of, but no one sees who you really are. And people can't live with that. So we can't stand the spotlight, but you know who deserves the spotlight? Jesus. And that's why John the Baptist said, hey, listen, my job is to be the bridegroom, the best man at the party. Or my job is to be the best man at the party. And my responsibility is to make sure the groom marries the bride. I'm just handing, handing him off, giving him the rings. And once he marries her, my joy is fulfilled. And by analogy, when Jesus takes the rightful spot in the spotlight, our joy too will be filled. It takes off the pressure and we still reap the rewards. So tonight, we're going to be talking about diligence, perseverance, working behind the scenes. Not in front of everybody, but doing what God has called us to do. And if we're honest, sometimes that's hard. Okay, so we're going to read a passage in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. We'll pray and we'll jump in. It says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul is saying to this church, the Galatians, he's saying to them, listen, live that quiet life. He told that to the Thessalonians, but not like disconnected from society, a life of diligence. And don't grow weary in your diligence, in your doing good. Let's pray. 
Lord, we pray that you would speak to us, and I just pray that you remove every distraction, that your Holy Spirit does his work as he's faithful to do time in and time out. And we pray that tonight we leave changed people, people more like you. And we know that when we do that, our joy will be fulfilled because in your presence is fullness of joy. So we thank you and we praise you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. I think one of the most discouraging things in life is when all of your efforts are in vain. So a couple years ago, we, we did this trip to New York City called the Bowery Missions Trip. I know a lot of people miss the trip, but unfortunately, it just logistically, it never worked out. And we started doing something with Ray Dash at Newark, and hopefully we'll be able to do that this year. Just helping out a church, doing a service type thing. And that's what we did at the Bowery Mission. So going to the Bowery Mission is helping out homeless people in New York City. And we would feed them, we would mop, we would clean, whatever they need done, we would do it at the Bowery Mission. And one of those things entailed cleaning things that people didn't typically like to clean. And they had this little vestibule. I think that's the right word. Brian will tell me if I'm wrong. But there's this little corridor or this, like, area where you have a window, but it's, like, enclosed in the center of the building. I don't even know what it's for, but there's, like, four windows, and you just see outside, and there's this drain, and we get clogged up. So there's sewage. Just rain would come down in the center, and, like, I don't know what's used for or anything, but that drain would get clogged up, and there's, like, three feet of just sewage, gross water. And so in order to teach our students humility, I did the humble thing, and I led by example. No, I did not. I sent in the bad kids to clean up the storm drain or whatever it was. That's not really what happened. It probably happened that way. Probably didn't. I don't know. So I sent these guys in, and they were cleaning. And lo and behold, as they were trying to unclog the drain, they're just poking around, poke, 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 and then created a hole in the ground that led into the bathroom downstairs. So all the sewage just poured rapidly into the men's bathroom downstairs, which, by the way, was already kind of gross. Cockroaches, all kinds of weird stuff. And so we rushed down to the bathroom and just see it, like, spraying from the ceiling. The whole thing is just getting covered in sewage and grossness. And, and so, like, normally... On a normal day, when I'm just like at my spiritual best, I would lead by example, and I would clean. But instead, I said, you know what? We have to take care of this mess. I wonder who's going to do it. Probably all of you. And they started doing it. It was great. That's why we have a great youth group. You guys are great, better than me. So as they're cleaning, there was this one guy. I have no idea what his name was, but this man, like, he was in charge. And he wouldn't even let me direct people what to do. He told us exactly how he wanted it clean. He wanted us to take buckets. It was just the weirdest sight. We were on these, like, crates, like those, those egg crates or what? Not egg crates. Where were they? You, yeah, you have crates, right? So you're just standing on them. So you don't want to get your feet wet, and you're just mopping. But then he gave us buckets to, like, take it and then flush it down the toilet. And you're just like, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He's like, yeah, just take buckets of the thing and just dump it in the toilet and press the flush button, and it'll all just go away. And the thing is just pouring and pouring and pouring. And you're mopping and mopping and mopping and nothing is happening. And like the larger the gap, the more it comes out. And the more you're just like, you know what? I think all of this is in vain, right? I feel like a lot of times that's how our Christian life feels. Is you're given false direction. You're kind of following this guy that doesn't really know what he's doing. And then the other guy, 
He's just not humble enough to actually be a servant. And so as you're living your Christian life, you get discouraged, right? Because it seems like it's endless. It's almost like if you're going on, you know, you're, you're walking up a mountain, right? And there's like, sometimes they have those staircases to make it easier for people. And then you're just like, if I just get to the top of that stair, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And then you're like barely making it to that last step. And you turn your, to the left and then you see like a like double the amount of stairs, right? In that moment, you just have despair. You feel like, like it's never going to be possible. All of my effort is in vain. And so, by analogy, I feel like many people start to lose heart when they feel like all of their efforts are in vain. It's worthless. And they think things like, what is the point of reading my Bible if it doesn't seem like it's producing anything in me? What's the point of abstaining from certain things, not doing certain things, or participating in some activities that are Christian if it seems like, in the end, it's pointless? I know for me, one of the most discouraging things is like, as I grew up in a Christian home, and as I went to youth group all my life, I had a lot of really strong guys that encouraged me, blessed me, and then we, we graduated high school, and I saw them fall into sin. People that I looked up to. And then I had this, like, this moment of despair of, of thinking, if all my friends are falling into sin, what makes me think that I'm going to make it? Have you ever felt despair like that? Like all your effort might be in vain. Everything that you do, you witness the people and it doesn't seem to produce anything. You, you tell people about Jesus and maybe they start coming back to church and then they fall away. What happens when it doesn't seem like things are producing any fruit? Well, the Bible gives us motivation to never give up. It says in verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is a promise from God's word. And what Paul is telling the people here at this church is he's saying, because there are people trying to twist them and telling them, hey, you're not doing enough. These false teachers that were deceiving the Galatians, and Paul was very strict with them, saying, like, listen, no, that's not how it works. And as he's encouraging them and telling them, they were told, like, hey, don't even bother going to church. Don't bother tithing to pastors and paying pastors because it's not worth it. And, and so what Paul is saying as a larger principle is, listen, all that it takes, the only two factors between reaping a harvest is time and diligence. That you persevere in the work, that you keep on going, and then at the right time, you will receive a reward. Paul says it another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. You see, we have the promise that all we need to do is wait. Keep on working. Keep on going. Don't give up. Because one, at one point in time, Jesus is going to give us the reward of our efforts, of everything that we've been looking for. And guess what? The world doesn't have that. So you might be thinking like, oh, that's, that sounds like really nice. You're, you're not a Christian. Realize the world doesn't have any guarantee that you will reap what you sow. It's just like a nice phrase that makes you happy is like, you know, everything happens for a reason. How do you know that? You don't know that. 
People believe in karma. How do you know that karma is real? But people say things because it makes them feel better than about, about themselves. So how do you know that if you pursue a career in music, right, you're not a Christian, you're pursuing it, you got the whole plan, how do you know you're going to catch your big break? How do you know you're going to make a lot of money? How do you know you're that 1% and it's not just a whole bunch of movies and a bunch of like inspirational quotes fooling you into believing something that's not true? I remember there's a book that was really popular when I was a teenager called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Think and Grow Rich. And it was all about the power of positive thinking. If you think things, then you will obtain them. And even Jesus used these principles. And once upon a time, remember Tom Crenshaw? I was like looking at his library and I saw he had the book Think and Grow Rich. I was like, Pastor Tom, what in the world are you doing with this book? And he's like, didn't work for me, did it? <laughs> he just laughed. It's great. The world doesn't have any guarantee that its efforts will be rewarded, but Christians do. The same God that orders the universe, the same God that establishes seasons, spring, summer, winter, and fall, that same God makes everything beautiful in its time. And if you just keep on going, you're going to see it. Why don't you turn to John chapter 2 with me? We're going to flip to a couple different scriptures tonight. Keep you awake, hopefully. John chapter 2, I want you to see... An example of this in Scripture. John chapter 2, it's in the New Testament. So half of your Bible, go to the right half, not too far. Probably means nothing to you, but it's on page 1,503. No, 5 for me. Just in case you want to know. Okay, so Jesus performs his first miracle in John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, this was not Jesus being rude to his mom. This was actually a very respectful phrase, but Jesus was still challenging what she said as, as Mary's concerned. But we're going to talk about that in a second. So verse 5, his mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that, that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept good, the good wine until now. Okay. So in this story, this account I should say, lest people get mad at me for saying it, it's a story. It actually happened, okay? So... Way back when Jesus performs his first miracle, which is interesting, right? Of all the things that Jesus would do, if, if I were God, want to do my first miracle, like I want to stop a tornado, I, like there's like a terrorist and I just like destroy him on the spot. I don't know. Something really cool. And Jesus turns water into wine. Symbolic that Jesus came to bring joy as wine was a symbol of joy. And so what happens is Mary comes to Jesus with this concern because they're at a wedding. Jesus went to weddings. He was a normal human being, right? Like he was God, but he was also a human. 
And Mary says to Jesus, hey, they ran out of wine. And in those days, if you ran out of wine at your party, it was like a terrible omen for your marriage, number one. And number two, you could actually get sued. It was like a weird cultural thing where you could get in trouble if you did not provide enough wine for all of the guests. It was a complete embarrassment. And so Mary brings this concern, little as it may be to us, Jesus cared about her concern, but left her with a challenge, saying, what do you want me to do about it? Challenge Mary, and what does she say? She says to the servants next to him, whatever he says to you, do it. Mary, with her faith, says back to the servants, listen, he's going to tell you things to do, because I know him. I know Jesus. Jesus cares about these concerns. And because of that, he's going to tell you to do things and though you may not understand it now, you will later. So what does Jesus tell him to do? Now, I imagine Jesus could have just made wine appear out of nowhere, right? But here's the thing. Jesus wanted to use human beings, normal humans, so that those who share in the work would also share in the reward. Did you catch that? That as we participate in what God calls us to do, we also receive the blessing of what God will reap. And so what he tells them to do is this. All right, there's like six water pots. Fill them with water and bring it to the guy who's in charge of the whole wedding. Now, if you're a servant, seems kind of embarrassing, right? Like, okay, so Jesus told me to do it. I'm just going to do it. Pick up the water and he's like, hey, we got more wine. And he's like, why did you bring me jugs of water? It's like a sick joke. But whatever he tells you to do, you do it regardless of the perceived outcome, right? This is what Jesus is saying to the servants. And what's really cool is when the water turns into wine, the guy who's the headmaster of the feast, whatever, he says, you kept the best wine until now. Because normally in those days, you just kept like the worst, line, worst wine for last because your senses would get dulled as the night gets, you know, through and, and whatever. And so you would never save the best wine for last, but Jesus always saves the best for last. And so it says right there in the text, right, that he didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants did. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. So here's the point. You might want to write this down. We don't have to know the future to be faithful in the present. We don't have to know the future in order to be faithful in the present. And that's exactly what we want, isn't it? Is we want God to tell us what will happen in the future and then I'll be faithful. God, tell me what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. God, tell me who I'm going to marry. And I will position my, I'll be fine. Like I will, I will make sure I live a life that's glorifying you as long as you tell me now what's going to happen if I obey you. But Jesus says, trust in the Lord, and lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him, and he will direct all of your paths. Trust involves not knowing some things. And for me, what was so difficult, and this is where I'm going to share a little bit of my story, those of you that don't know it, is I could never stick to one thing. All throughout my life, I played basketball, I played Dance Dance Revolution, and I was like, national, not nationally, I was state ranked at one point, and it was just geeky and weird. You know what Dance Dance Revolution is with the pads and fake dancing? I did that because I wanted to be good at something. 
until I looked around and I was like, wow, everybody's a geek here. Why am I here? I'm going to stop playing. So I did, and I moved on. I skateboarded for a long time, and I wanted to go pro as a skateboarder. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be a photographer. And if you look at my portfolio, I've tried all these things. Because for me, my greatest fear in life is this, that I would be useless. I was always afraid of being that person that everyone complimented to their face and behind their back was just like, Psh, that was terrible, wasn't it? Don't you fear of being that person? That you, you work so hard on your piece of art and you put it out there. It's like super sensitive, right? And as you do that, you're afraid somebody is going to lie to your face and say that it's awesome, it's amazing, it's beautiful, and not really be affected by it. That is my greatest fear in life. That everything that I do would one day be counted useless. And that's why I tried to find what is the one thing I'm good at. And I would never stick to one thing. And when I did, everyone stopped doing what I was doing. I started rock climbing. I said, okay, I finally find something that I want to do. And then all my friends were like, yeah, we're going to do it too. And they stopped doing it. I found music and I want to do, do the band thing, do the tour thing. And all my band members got married or moved away to Bible college or whatever. And I felt like I was always fighting against the will of God. And I wanted him to tell me, what is it that you want to do? I actually prayed a prayer, believe it or not. I was in California, 2009, January, a youth workers conference. And I recorded on a little recorder, because our phones didn't record things back then, I think. I don't know why I had to record it. That must have been it. I recorded on the recorder. I said, all right, Lord, I have to make a decision with what I'm going to do this year. I took a hiatus off of college. I did two years at Brookdale. I was, I was trying to figure out, do I want to go to acting school or whatever? I said, I will be an actor, photographer, a musician. Tell me which one you want me to do. And lo and behold, I'm not any of those things. Right? God doesn't want to tell you the future sometimes because he wants you to develop a relationship with him where you're going to trust him step by step. What's better, knowing every single thing that's going to happen in your life in the future or just being able to have your personal GPS system where God tells you to turn left, turn right. He tells you what to do. Now, it sounds on the surface like I will want to know everything that's going to happen. But in reality... No, you wouldn't, because half of the things God calls you to do, you would not believe him if he asked you, because you wouldn't be prepared. If God told me when I was 17 that I'd be preaching in front of like a thousand people one day or whatever, I'd freak out. I'd be like, that's crazy. I don't believe you. Oftentimes, God wants you to just trust him, trust him in the meantime, and that's why you're here. But now the question is, are you being diligent where you are now? Are you, like these servants, filling the water pots with water and saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust Jesus that I'm going to receive the blessing if I share in the work. So not only do we need the spotlight, like we learned last week, we don't need the spotlight. We also don't need to see the end result of our work in order to be diligent in what God's called us to do. If you look back at Galatians chapter 6, we have confidence that our work will not be in vain, and that leads us to verse 10. It says this, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this is what he's saying to do. Since it's guaranteed 
that you will reap what you sow if you do not lose heart, then you don't have to wait till Jesus comes back to be faithful. You can share in the life of Christ now, and that will culminate in his return. I think about when Jesus was betrayed. Remember, he told his disciples to watch and pray. Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. And we take that verse as like, okay, what this is saying is when I'm tempted, when my flesh is, is screaming and I want to give in to the desires of my, you know, sinful nature, then I should resist. I should watch and pray. I also think that this is an illustration of how we are to be living our Christian lives in light of the future. Because if you think about it, what does the Bible say about Jesus' return? That he will come as a thief in the night. How is Jesus betrayed by thieves in the night? Isn't it true? Judas and a bunch of his cronies came in to steal Jesus away while the disciples were not looking. And Jesus is saying, listen, don't let it happen to you. You are my disciples. You are my followers. Don't let it happen to you that my coming to you, my coming back to the earth, happens by surprise. Instead, we're supposed to be looking forward to the day that Christ returns. So he says three things. He says, as we have opportunity, do good to all, and especially Christians. First of all, as we have opportunity. Here's an important principle, and you might want to write this down. The missions field is where you are. The missions field doesn't exist out there somewhere in Australia, Africa, England, Hungary. Yes, there is a mission field there, but the mission field is where God has placed you now. My youth pastor, Joey Rozek, had this quote, which I love, and it's this. As long as I have breath in my lungs, I have a ministry. And as long as I have people, I have, oh, sorry, I just botched that. This is what he said. As long as I have breath in my lungs, God isn't done with me. And as long as I have people, I have a ministry. That's the only two things you need. Are you alive? God's not done with you. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, are there people around you? There's plenty of people here. You have people that you can serve. People that you can bless. Not just come here to receive for you and just like leave and just like, all right, that was great. But actually to take this and to be a blessing to somebody around you. It might be the person you're sitting next to. Maybe you're the type of person that hasn't been taking every opportunity. No, there are no opportunities to serve. I'm busy with school. I'm busy with sports. Those things happen. But guess what? There's always an opportunity to serve because you always have simple people around you. You might say, I can't go on a mission trip. You know what you can do? You can sponsor a missionary. Here's something teenagers don't do, and I didn't do it until, like, I graduated college. Tithe! It's me being honest, right? I don't know when I started tithing, but I know it was in high school. We think that's something for adults, and what does it really matter if I give $10, right? If I give 10% of my paycheck, I make $100 a week, I give $10 to the Lord. What does that really matter? Didn't Jesus say the woman with the two mites, the two little coins, gave more than the Pharisees that gave out of the abundance of what they had? See, because once again, it's not about our perception of the result. It's about being diligent with what God has called you to do. 
That will save you from a lifetime of trouble. Because so much of our sin is based out of our rationalization. Our thinking of, I will help God out. I will do what seems logical rather than exercising faith, which means that though you don't know why he's calling you to do it, you're going to do it anyway. Isn't this what Jesus called uh, Moses to do, Abraham to do, Joseph to do, Joshua to do, all these great men of faith? Think about Noah. Hey, I want you to build an ark because it's going to rain. Though it's never done that before. Like water's going to come out of the sky and you're going to have to build a boat. And Noah did it. People made fun of him. People mocked him. And he still did it because God called him to do it. And imagine if Noah rationalized with God. God, I know you made the universe, but uh, I don't think I need a boat. He would have died. So if God calls you to build a boat, just know that's happened in the past. That's all I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. He also says, do good to all. So do what? Do good. To how many people? All people. And he says, especially Christians, especially those who are of the household of faith. You know what's really easy to do? Go on a mission trip to a faraway land, bless people, feed them, do nice things for them, come back. You know what's hard to do? That person at church that you despise, do good to that person. That's hard. Why is that hard? We're all sinful people, right? But it's hard to practice love because the enemy of our souls, Satan, the deceiver, is always looking to divide people and always show you the dirt. You're going to help that person out when they don't deserve it? Yeah, none of us deserve it. Newsflash. All of us are deserving of punishment for the sins that we ourselves have committed. And yet we are called by God to do good to all, especially those who are Christians, and do that first. So let's talk about why we should be diligent. I'm going to wrap this up. Don't worry. I know you guys have been sitting for a while. I think it's important, though, to talk about why. If we don't talk about the why, you're just going to be thinking about all the objections to everything I just said. So we're going to talk about rationalize through it together. Here's the why. Because we will reap what we sow. This is what the Bible says in verse 7 through 8 of Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the, the Spirit reap everlasting life. I love what two commentators say. They're uh, Walverd and Dr. Zuck. They say this about this passage. Each sower decides what his harvest will be. I think it's funny that no one who grows strawberries... You had the little seeds. No one who grows strawberries is surprised that they have a strawberry plant at the end of their planting. No one puts the seed in the ground and says, oh my goodness, a strawberry came out. It's because you reap what you sow. No one says, oh, I was really hoping for a watermelon. I was really ho hoping for a human baby boy. <laughs> that would be just really weird. And talk to your parents about that one because that's not my job. The principle here is if you put in certain work, you're going to reap that certain result. And so reaping God's promises involves hard, diligent work. Think about Joseph when he was betrayed by his brothers and he had to spend time, years in the land of Egypt. He was in a dungeon. 
He could have thought, man, God has neglected me. But he, out of everything he suffered, looked back at those years and said, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. God was at work this entire time, and he was patient, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12 says this, God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, and that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's through faith and patience that, patience that we obtain what God has promised us. Think about Joshua, and he was only able to tear down Jericho after he obeyed to surround the city of Jericho, not once, twice, but seven times. So, get this. Joshua, I'm going to send you to destroy the land of Jericho, the city of Jericho. And you're going to do it by not really swords, guns, not like you know what that is. You're going to take trumpets, and you're going to march around seven times. And you're going to blow the trumpet, and the walls come down. That sounds like a very strange battle tactic. And yet he obeyed. And because he obeyed, he was able to receive the reward. Wouldn't you hate to be that guy that is always on the outside of God's blessing? You're always that guy peeking in to what God is doing. You're watching people around you. Their lives are being transformed. Their lives are being changed. And you don't know what that's like. You're watching people say, man, I went out evangelizing. I did it. And God saved that person. And I... I went, I like looked for the person who I thought would never receive Jesus. I asked him. Yesterday I was hearing uh, one of my friends, his dad is a pastor, and he was talking about his friends. He invited, um, he was invited to this crusade or this outreach. And after he, he went to this outreach, he never heard the gospel before in his life. And so he asked Jesus to be the Lord of his life. He, he received Jesus. He went down on the altar call. And afterwards his friend said to him, you know, you were the last person that we ever thought would become a Christian. And you know what he thought? First of all, he was really offended that his friends thought that, terror, you know, that low of him. The second thing he thought is this. How amazing it is, is it is that his friends have this logic. You will probably never accept Jesus, therefore we're going to invite you. And he did. And wouldn't it be cool to be that person that you invested in somebody who you thought would never receive Jesus, and he does. And for eternity, that will be to your credit. Obviously, God's credit, right? But you get to go up to heaven and be like, man, I had a hand in God's work. Like the servants who just brought those water pots. As everyone else is saying, where did you get this wine? It's the servants who knew exactly how God did it because they were diligent to the end. All right, I'll move a little bit faster here. Diligence is a witness. This is another reason why we should be faithful. Another reason why we should be diligent. It's a witness. Because when we act in diligence, we prove that we believe that we will be rewarded. The entire world is looking at us like, why do you go to church every single Friday? Why do you go to church not only Fridays, but Sundays too? Why do you serve at church? Because you believe that there will be a reward. You will reap what you sow. Why do you read your Bible every day? Because I believe God's going to speak to me. Why do you listen to Bible teachings? Because I believe God's going to speak to me. Why do you pray? Because I believe God's going to answer. It's a witness to the world. And Andrew Murray is a pastor who said this. 
Your Christian life is to be a continuous proof that God works in possibilities. I love that. Your life is to be proof that God continually works in possibilities. He does miracles. How do I know? Because he's done it in my life. And thirdly, the reason why we should be diligent, not only because we will reap what we sow, because it's a witness, but because God is faithful. Because God's diligent. You know that God always finishes what he starts? He never does things halfway and gives up. And I did that for a very long time. The minute I thought what I was doing was not going to produce what I thought it would, I gave up. I stopped skateboarding altogether. I stopped playing basketball altogether. I stopped doing all these things because I didn't think they would be fruitful in the end. But the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Jesus is the yes and the amen. His word, it says, will not return void. It will always accomplish the purpose for which it was sent out. So that's why we can't lose heart when we don't immediately see the harvest. Maybe the, the seed that you plant today won't be reaped for 10 years. Would you still be willing to wait? Maybe what you do now, because maybe you get discouraged, you're reading the Bible every single day, and like, I don't know if I'm getting anything out of this. Will you be faithful despite not knowing the future, knowing that you will always reap what you sow? Here's the last thing for today, and that's this. Focus on the finish line. Focus on the finish line. So what we've been talking about is you don't have to see the future to be faithful in the present. You can be diligent now, knowing that this is the mission field God has given you, and there are people around you that you can serve, minister to, bless, witness to. But also, you got to focus on the finish line. This is where that verse says, once again, don't grow weary while doing good because in the right time, due season, we're going to reap if we don't lose heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. You might want to write that down because it's helped me through my stubbornness sometimes. It says this, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. NLT puts it this way. Finishing is better than starting. Patience is better than pride. All right. Here's the convicting part, the part that makes people not want to come back to youth group. It's really easy to start stuff. It's really hard to complete them. It's really easy to start serving. It's really hard to finish well while serving. It's really easy to say, yeah, I'd love to help out with coffee fellowship. I'd love to help out for VBS. It's really hard to actually follow through and do it. Anyone can start anything. Anyone can hypothetically say, this is what I will do in the future. But will you be a person that finishes, that follows through with what they've set out to do? I have probably hundreds, not even kidding, hundreds of files on my computer of uncompleted, incompleted musical projects. I started a song halfway through. I was like, this is stupid, and I stopped. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these musical files. It's really easy to start a song, really hard to complete one. But sometimes what I found is this. As I'm writing music, and those of you that are musicians, you might know this too, I might be writing a song five years from when I started the original song, and then I think of a riff that I was creating, and I just bring it, that would work perfectly, and I just take it from something I had five years ago, and I insert it into the project today. 
A lot of what you do now may not be for now and may be for later. Although I did a lot of random things, I learned how to code HTML because that was my second job. First job was being a busboy. My second job was working at Old Bridge High School, programming computers and stuff. I'm Asian. I have to do it. <laughs> All those things actually came in handy as being a youth pastor. My degree is not in being a youth pastor. It's public relations. It's in, like, advertising. And there's a degree of that here, right? All these things, I saw God's hand was in everything he asked me to do. So here's the thing with you. What you're doing now may not be for now. It may be for later. But be diligent where you are. Be faithful where you are. You're working a part-time job. And a lot of people in the world especially, they think, Psh, this is only a part-time job. I'm only in this for a season, and then I'm out of here. And so they treat the job with grumpiness. They treat the job with a lack of diligence. They show up late. But if you instill these habits now, be a witness now. Saying, I don't know the possibilities of how God could use me right here, right now. Who knows what doors God will open. So that's what I'm saying. Really easy to start things. Really hard to finish them. But finishing means that you lay down your pride. That's why he says patience is better than pride. Our pride says, well, I don't want to start something. I don't want to attempt to finish it and it not be good. It not look that great. That's where we got to humble ourselves and just do it. Okay. In conclusion, turn to Luke chapter 14. I promise this is it. Luke chapter 14. I'll read you a couple verses. I know it feels late because it is late, but... I will say, because we had the Q&A thing, it pushed everything back. So I'm actually doing pretty good on time, in case you were wondering. Luke chapter 14. Look at verse 26 with me. Now, Jesus will say things that are very offensive. So just hang on. Don't leave the building yet. Let's get through this. Verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Let's eat ice cream. Let's pray. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's not what we're doing. Keep reading. And anytime, this is a principle that Pastor Lloyd has. Anytime you have questions, just keep reading. Keep reading. It'll make sense. Verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation, is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Right? So we experience that, right? Many people starting, but not being able to finish. Verse 31. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet, who, meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or who else? While the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Okay, when Jesus talks about hating your mom and dad, it's not what you think. <laughs> He's not saying go and hate people. Because we know that's not true because the Bible even says, if whoever says he loves God and hates his mother and hates his brother and sister, brother and sister in the Lord, 
is lying, right? So God is love. We know all that. So what does the scripture mean? It says if Jesus is not number one in your life, if he's not the priority in your life, guess what he's also not? He is not your Lord. Imagine a king talking to a servant and says, hey, servant, can you get me some grape juice? I mean, I did grape juice. Mine gave me grape juice. And the servant says back to the king, I just don't feel like it today. Sorry. And really, you're going to ask me to get grape juice? You can ask me to get other things, but psh, that's so beneath me. He's the king. You're the servant. Servants obey. Kings, that's just what they do. What Jesus is saying is, your love for me has to be so great that everything in contrast is almost like hate. Dramatic, right? Not saying that you can't love things, but what he's saying here is, is Jesus the priority? If you want to embrace all that God has for you in this life, it means forsaking some things. It means the people that tell you don't go to church are actually people that you might have to leave. It means that there are certain things in your life that are idols, things that you worship that are not God, things that are going to stumble you, and you have to say no to those things. There will be friends that invite you to parties. There will be relationships that you say no to. And you think, but Jesus, they would be so perfect if they were only a Christian. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't forsake all those things and follow me, you are not my disciple. This is where we have to count the cost. It's easy to come to youth group. It's easy, easy to come to church, but will you finish well? Or when you leave this place, you go off to college, will all the allures, all the cool things out there, your first opportunity to be able to drink alcohol legally, your first opportunity to be able to, like, smoke marijuana while no one else is looking, or maybe you're in California and it's legal there, your first opportunity to indulge in certain things and no one else knows. Will you still follow Jesus there? Will you finish well? Because we know, right? We know that what Jesus has to offer us is a reward that will always be far greater than what the world has for us. We believe that. We are people that are here tonight that are stupid enough to believe that. Because you know why? It's a surprise. All of this is a surprise. We don't know. And some people hate surprises. Tell me what you got me for Christmas. Tell me what you got me for my birthday. And Jesus says, I'm not telling you. Just trust me, and it's going to be good. And the same God that gave us everything we enjoy right now is the one who's going to give you that reward. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would be diligent. We wouldn't lose heart. It's so easy to be discouraged when we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But we pray that we finish well knowing that you are a God that does all things well. Pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here struggling, feels lost, that they feel a part of this family and they just know your love tonight. They wouldn't fear, Lord, stepping away from things that are sinful, knowing that the things that you have are always greater. Pray these things, Lord. Go before us now. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.